are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. Good day or good evening to you all, wherever you are, whatever part of the world you're viewing this from. My name is David Guzik, and at 12 noon West Coast time in the United States on Thursday afternoons, whenever I'm available, I try to get together with you, a YouTube live audience, to answer whatever questions you might have about the Bible, the Christian life, anything else you want to ask about. I certainly don't think for a moment that I have the answer to everything, certainly not every question about the Bible. But if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know, and maybe we can talk about some of the things that I can share a little bit of my experience or my knowledge on. Uh, If you haven't been introduced, or if we haven't been introduced before, some people know me from an online Bible commentary that I have. We call it the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. It's available at EnduringWord.com. Some people find it helpful. And we have it translated into many languages, and a significant part of our work is continuing that translation work. On these Thursday afternoons, we invite you to come and offer your questions, and I'll respond to them the best I can. But we like to lead with a question that has come in maybe on the previous week from social media, from a leftover question, from the question and answer the week before, because generally we can't always get to the questions that come in on a particular week. And so this lead question has to do with the simple question, are Christians required to keep the Old Testament law? And here's what we're starting from, from Maria. Now, it's a little bit of a longer question from Maria, so stick with me as I read my way through her question. And uh, where she quotes a few Bible passages, I'm going to put them up on the screen for you here. So this is the question from Maria. She says, hello. I've been listening to and reading the verse-by-verse lessons from your website. I have a question. When the New Testament says that we do not have to do the law any longer, does that apply to the commandments? Here is where I get tripped up. Pastor David makes perfect sense in his explanation of the keeping of the law as it relates to the Ten Commandments, but in John 14, 15, Jesus says... If you love me, keep my commandments. This is where I get confused. I love Jesus, and there is no commandment I want to break, except the Sabbath sometimes when I need to hire someone like a plumber. I've had Christians call me legalistic because of this, but I don't want to disobey God no matter what, and I even did a three-day fast over this to try to understand it better. Also, again, I'm still reading Maria's question. Romans chapter 3, verse 31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And I thought that Paul was trying to say we have to obey the law here as well. So these two scriptures, she's referring to John 14, 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then Romans 3, 31, which I just read to you. So these two scriptures really got me mixed up in trying to understand the matter. If Pastor David could specifically address these two scriptures in relationship to the keeping of the commandments, it would really help me to understand this in my heart. 
All right. Well, Maria, this is an excellent question, and I think it's very helpful for Christians to understand this, what the Bible says about this in its entirety. Let's begin with just saying this, that the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Law in general, that was never given with the thought that anyone might earn heaven by obeying them all perfectly or even adequately. The covenant that God made with Israel was much bigger than just the law, just bigger than the commandments that they had to keep. Though, in some ways, the law was its first and perhaps most dramatic and day-to-day aspect. But another aspect of the covenant was sacrifice, which was given because both God and Israel knew that it was impossible for them to keep this law perfectly, and they had to depend on the sacrifice of an innocent victim as a substitute for the guilty lawbreaker. Now, in this sense, the Ten Commandments were like a mirror that showed Israel their need for sacrifice. You see, the Old Testament law can also be summarized as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 22. So let me read this passage to you. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, where Jesus says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, you could say that Jesus simplified the law. He simplified the law, the simplified the Ten Commandments. But but this simplification doesn't eliminate the Ten Commandments. It fulfills them, showing us the heart and the desire of God for his people. The problem is that We haven't kept the two commandments, much less the ten. Is there anybody watching this right now or listening to it later who can say that they have actually loved the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and all their mind, and they've done it perfectly since day one? Or is there anyone who can say that they have perfectly loved their neighbor as themselves? No, what Jesus did was he simplified the law, but he didn't make it any easier to keep. More importantly, we know that Jesus himself was the only one to ever keep the law of Moses perfectly. Jesus kept it perfectly in the 10, in the 2, and in the whole law of Moses. Only Jesus was the one to keep it perfectly. Jesus never needed to sacrifice for his own sin. Therefore, he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And wonderfully, His obedience is credited to those who put their love and trust in him. Maria, I want you to think of this very important passage, Romans chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Let me read that to you. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned the sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Maria, did you see those words? This is amazing. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in God's people. 
This is his amazing promise to those who repent and believe on Jesus. That's why Paul could write this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul wrote these words. Uh, He said, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you see that there? It's very important, very powerful. There is a sense in which we died to the law, as Paul explained. Let me read those words to you again. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. And this also explains that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Before God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ was fully evident, we were kept under guard by the law both in the sense of being bound by the law, but also being held in protective custody. The law, through its revelation of God's character and its exposure of our sin, prepared us to come to Jesus. But after we've come to Jesus, we no longer have to live under our tutor or schoolmaster, though we remember the behavior that the law taught us. You see, from the perspective of the Bible, the entire Bible, we can say that the law of God has three great purposes and uses in the life of the believer today. Number one, it is a guardrail keeping humanity on a moral path. Number two, it is a mirror showing us our moral failure and our need for a savior. Number three, the law is a guide showing us the heart and the desire of God for his people. Now, considering all of this, we can say some things about the relationship that the believer has to the Old Testament law today. For the believer, the obedience of Jesus Christ is credited to them, and Jesus fulfilled the law on their behalf, just as we previously read in Romans chapter 8. And the ceremonial and the sacrificial aspects of the law are likewise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we are specifically told that we are not under such law. Maria and everybody else, let me show you this passage from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of of things to come, but the substance is Christ. That's really a remarkable statement. We live in freedom in regard to the law, especially in regard to its ceremonial aspects, which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the law was a unified whole. If Christians are under the law in the same sense that Israel was, then we are also under the law of sacrifice. We're under the dietary laws. We're under the feast laws. We're under the ceremonial laws and such. So in Christ, the Christian is no longer under the law, but, and this is where everybody needs to listen to me carefully, but the Christian is still concerned with obedience because Jesus Christ, the perfectly obedient one, lives 
within them. Friends, I think this is so important. Though we are no longer under the law as Israel was, the Old Testament law remains a valid expression of God's heart and mind, not in its ceremonial aspects, but its basic moral aspects. So an example of a moral aspect is you shall not murder. That's just as valid for the Christian today as it was for the Jewish person under the Old Testament law. Uh, the, the command that we should be truthful to one another, just as valid for the Christian today and, and plainly said to be a matter of New Testament obedience, it's the moral aspect of the law. The ceremonial aspects of the law, those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we are free to either keep them or to not keep them as would please us, as Paul stated in Colossians chapter 2. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or the new moon or the Sabbaths. Maria, if you want to keep the Sabbath, you have full liberty in Jesus Christ to do so. Just don't think it makes you any more right with God than somebody who doesn't keep the Sabbath, a believer who does not keep the Sabbath. If you want to keep a kosher diet, you have full liberty in Jesus Christ to do it. Go right ahead. But it doesn't make you any more right with God than a Christian, than a believer who does not keep kosher. Now, let me address what you noted in John chapter 14, verse 15, when Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. I want to give some clarity to what Jesus said there. In the largest sense, this does include the law of Moses as a guardrail because the law of Moses is the law of God and Jesus is God. We could say that the law of Moses is the commandment of Jesus. That's true. But at the moment Jesus said those words, if you love me, keep my commandments. I don't think he had in mind the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses as a whole. He had in mind what he had just said to his disciples. You see, Jesus had just demonstrated his remarkable love to the disciples by washing their feet. That was a remarkable thing for Jesus to do. And he told them that their loving response should be to keep his commandments. So he commanded them to wash one another's feet after the example he displayed. That's in John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. He commanded them to love one another after the pattern of his love to them. That's in John chapter 13, verse 34. And he commanded them to put their faith in the God and Father and in Jesus himself. That's in John chapter 14, verse 1. So keeping the commandments of Jesus, it does speak to our personal morality. Yet when Jesus said those words in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, I think his emphasis was on the commandments that he just gave, that they should love one another, have faith in him and God the Father as demonstrations of obedience to his commandments. And friends, that is a fair measure of our love for Jesus. It's easy to think of loving Jesus as a merely sentimental or emotional thing. Now, it's wonderful when our love for Jesus has emotion and passion behind it. That's great. But it must always be connected to keeping his commandments. 
especially his commandments, to love one another and to trust God, or it isn't love at all. Though the emphasis is on love, these words of Jesus also have a general application to our Christian obedience. For the believer, disobedience is not merely a failure of performance or failure of strength. In some sense, it's also a failure of love. Those who love God most will obey him most joyfully and naturally. If anyone says, I really love Jesus, I just don't want him to tell me how to live my life. That's a terrible misunderstanding of both Jesus and our love to him. So friends, we are not under the law as Israel was, but we are under obligation to obey God in joyful consistency with who he has made us in, or I should say, as new creations in Jesus Christ. Let me say one fourth thing, Maria, before I get to the questions that have come in. We must be very careful that we never equate obedience with legalism. <laughs> For a Christian to say we should obey what God tells us to do in this book, I mean, with a right understanding of the place of the law and all of that, but make no mistake about it, the Bible gives the believer in Jesus Christ, the Christian, the one who's under the new covenant of God, the Bible tells that person how to live. And to say, I want to obey that, and to say, we as Christians should obey it, that's not legalism. That is simple obedience to Jesus Christ. Be careful. Obedience is not legalism. Now, there are people who use legalism and calls to obedience as a cloak for it, but they're not the same thing. Hope that's helpful for you, Maria. Let me go now to the questions that have come in on the live chat, beginning with a question from God Child 55 it says, it seems God is going to do what he's going to do. He is sovereign and his will is perfect. When we pray for change in our circumstances, are we partnering with God's will or seeking our own outcome? Well, God, child, you're asking a very good question. And it's something that is one of these tensions that we have to recognize in the Christian life. Here's the tension that we have to recognize. That God has a sovereign plan of, his, of the ages that he's working out from eternity past to the consummation of all things. God has an eternal plan that he's going to work out and nothing can stop that plan from being enacted. God will accomplish his will. And at the same time, by every sense that we have, we feel and we are intended to feel like God, from God that we have real choice. And the Bible treats us as real men and real women who have real choices to make in light. It does not treat us as robots at all. So what I think we do is we hold both things in hand. That God is sovereign and we have real choices. And if people want to say, well, how does that reconcile? We say, I don't know, God reconciles it. Charles Spurgeon is a favorite figure of mine. 
I've got a couple bobbleheads of Charles Spurgeon, not one behind me right now. That's Martin Luther right behind me. But I've gained so much by reading the sermons and the books of Charles Spurgeon over the years. And make no mistake about it, Charles Spurgeon was a convinced Calvinist. He was a five-pointer. He wanted to be very reformed in that aspect of his doctrine. But he was also a very sensible, if I could use that term, Calvinist. And he said many things that I think um, understand and accommodate both these seemingly paradoxical, I wouldn't call them contradictory, but paradoxical truths. And I'll never forget one sermon that I read by Spurgeon. I believe it's called Both Sides of the Shield. And I wish I could tell you which uh, text it was based upon. But in that sermon, in his introductory period to that sermon, Spurgeon gives such a beautiful declaration of how God's unchanging sovereign will and the free choices and actions of mankind work together in beautiful concert. One of them does not contradict the other in any way. So, when we pray, God wants us to feel, wants us to pray as if our prayers truly matter, because I think they do. And to try to get our head around, well, how do my prayers really matter, uh, coincide with God's unchanging will? I don't know. And I don't know that we're meant to know on this side of eternity. We're just supposed to have confidence in God's immutable, unchanging, wonderful plan and in the real choices that he gives us as human beings to make. So when we pray, For a change in circumstances, are we partnering with God's will or seeking our own outcome? Well, that really depends on the attitude of heart. I think it's entirely valid for us to pray. Lord, I pray that you would change my circumstances, but in every prayer I pray, I yield to your greater wisdom. You know, we could just construct a hypothetical idea here, plan. The idea is simply being that someone's in a job and they feel the job's going poorly and they feel I I really need another job and they pray, God, get me out of this job. And they're very discouraged because God doesn't seem to be answering that prayer. And they say, Lord, why won't you answer my prayer? And then something happens at their present job to make it a dream position. They get a new boss. They get much bigger pay. They get a new promotion. And they realize later, God, thank you for not answering my prayer. That's what I'm saying, God child is that we always pray with an attitude of submission. It's entirely fair for us to pray, Lord, as much as I can see the situation, this is what I think would most glorify you. But Lord, you see the things I can't see, and I trust your will. I hope that's helpful for you there, God child. I have to say, I am not troubled by this at all. I find great glory in the power of God he is able to reconcile his sovereign plan with our real choices in a glorious way. Next question comes to us from Melissa. And Melissa asks this question. Do you think that everything that happens to us, example, a car wreck, a stubbed toe, burning dinner, is meaningful or useful to God in his plan for us? Is everything significant? 
Melissa, I can answer that very quickly. In the way God wants us to live our life, no, we should not regard everything that happens to us to have some great spiritual significance. You you can just imagine the person who's walking along and they stub their toe. I stubbed my toe yesterday. It hurt very badly and just for a few moments, but at the time it hurt very badly. Now, I think it would be very wrong and dishonoring for God if I were to sit down and, and spend an hour contemplating the spiritual significance of that stubbed toe. God, what is the meaning of that? How do you want to use this? How does the devil want to use this? Oh God, give me guidance on this. No, I don't think that as a practor, uh, as a practical matter of wise Christian living, we should regard every event as being rich with spiritual significance. Now, that doesn't mean that every event doesn't somehow fit into God's plan. We believe that it does. We believe that God works all things together for good, for those who know God and are the, for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. (laughs) Like right now, you, you could say, and I know this is getting a little strange, you could say that that stubbed toe that I had yesterday provided me the opportunity to use it as an illustration to you, Melissa, and everybody else who's watching, and that's God's plan working out for good. Well, I I didn't know any of that yesterday, but now I know it now. So we can know that God has some purpose, some significance, but not in a way that we're to regard that way in the way way that we live our daily Christian life. God wants us just to be wise in the way that we live and to consider that every small thing in our life has some great spiritual significance, I don't think is wise living. And that's simply the way that that would answer that, Melissa, but that's a great question. Let me go on to the next question that comes from Susan, who says, recently I met a homeless man. Should Oh, recently I fed a homeless man. Sorry for that. Should I tell others that I did this act of charity so others will follow my example? Or should I keep this to myself knowing that God sees? Susan, um, I would hold back on telling people unless you felt there was a specific situation where it might do others good. You see, Susan, what you're really talking about is a matter of the heart. And these are interesting things in the Christian life, are they not? Two Christians can do the very same thing. Two Christians could feed a homeless person. And they do the same action. But one does it at a heart of love and compassion. And one does it out of a heart of, um, let's just say, pride and arrogance. It's the same action. But the heart behind it determines whether or not God is truly pleased with that action. So, Susan, I would say simply this. If you're in a situation where you think that it would really be of benefit to somebody else. For example, you're talking with somebody and saying, well, I'm really bothered by some of the homeless people I run into. I wonder what I should do. And then, Susan, you could say, let me tell you what I did the other day and maybe this will help you. But if you're just bringing it up in casual conversation, especially with a heart, and let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to know our hearts, but with a heart that desires the attention, the acclaim, then Susan, that's a bad thing. 
So really, this is truly a matter of the heart. Our motive needs to be to help other people, to give honor and glory to God, and not to lift ourselves up in front of others to be, oh, the great benefactor of others. Look at how holy I am. I even feed the homeless. But Susan, I would say, assuming that what you did was led of the Lord, and I have no reason to think otherwise, God bless you for doing that. God wants us to be charitable in our daily interactions with other people. That doesn't necessarily mean that we give in every circumstance because sometimes to give to a person is not to help them at all. It's only to enable them in a bad manner of living. But I think in general, God wants us to be more generous and generous more often than we usually are. Susan, God bless you, and I hope that that answer is helpful for you. Next question comes from Grizzle MC, who says this. In Romans 3.25, the Apostle Paul talks about declaring his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Does that mean that our past sins up to that point are covered? Regarding everything we do afterwards, do we need to confess and repent as in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? Okay, here's the verse. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says this. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, he's speaking of Jesus and his work on the cross, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. Okay, Grizzle MC. What Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, does not concern so much the sins of the individual believer, but how God regarded sin before the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God was more generous in his mercy in forbearing sin before Jesus finished his work on the cross, simply because there was not the cross to point to as a place to be forgiven and a place to hold mankind accountable to for the forgiveness of sins. Now, please, we know this. God most certainly did judge sin before Jesus' work on the cross. It just shows that there was in some way a more generous aspect. God had more forbearance and he passed over sins that were previously committed. Not that he ignored them, but he was more generous towards them. The cross holds humanity to a greater accountability. This is echoed in the letter that was written to the Hebrews, where he says, of how much more judgment will those be held liable when they reject an even greater salvation that is made evidence to us on this side of the cross. Now, I don't think that Romans chapter 3 verse 25 has much relevance to an individual's relationship. It's speaking more about what God was doing in the big picture. But Grizzle MC, what you bring up has a lot of relevance to the individual Christian life. When a person comes to Jesus 
and repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus, that is, they trust in, rely on, and cling to Jesus as their hope in this life and in the next, they truly put their faith in him. When a person does that, their sins are forgiven. Their sin is put on Jesus, and the righteousness of Jesus is put upon them. That means that their sin problem is resolved past, present, and future. However, it's not just a matter of our sin problem being resolved. It's also a matter of our fellowship with God. When a Christian sins after their initial salvation, they don't lose their salvation. Can you imagine how terrible that would be? You lose your salvation. Um, I was saved. I went out and I got drunk and I lost my salvation. No, that's not how it works at all. But what our sin can do, and it's very difficult to describe how this might happen, to what degree this might happen. This is all a matter of degrees and it's difficult to discern the degrees, but, but there's a general truth here that's very real. Our sin interrupts our fellowship with God. That's what John is getting at in 1 John chapter 5 when he speaks, excuse me, 1 John chapter 1, uh, that's the verse you mentioned, verse 9, where, where he talks about um, being cleansed when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's speaking about sin in the life of the believer relevant to not so much salvation, but fellowship with God. You can be a believer and for a time, I'm not speaking about an ongoing condition of life, but for a time, you can be walking in darkness. Paul addressed believers in the New Testament all the time who were in that state, in the Corinthian church, uh, in the Ephesian church, or at least he warned them about it. We need to walk in the light. Now, again, if that's a standing condition in a person's life, if a person is comfortable in habitual sin, we have right to question their salvation. But we're never sinless until we pass from this life to the next. And in our resurrection, our salvation is complete and we are under not only the penalty of sin, we're free from that, not only are we free from the power of sin, as we can be right now, but we're also free from the presence of sin. Now, sin in the life of the believer doesn't take away their salvation, but it can interrupt their fellowship with God, and that's what's being addressed. So, confession and repentance is vital for the believer, first of all, as assurance that they really have a heart after God, but secondly, it's essential for the life of the believer so that they live in close fellowship with God. As John says, John was writing to believers. He refers to brethren all the time in his letter. I'm talking about 1 John. He says, if we walk in darkness, we're not walking in the light. We lie and the truth of God is not in us. The emphasis there is on fellowship, not salvation. Hope that's helpful for you there, Grizzle MC. Go on to the next question to Jordan. Uh, do you believe, or from Jordan, do you believe in soul ties? 
Okay, Jordan, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know exactly what you mean by that. I think I might know generally that one person can be joined to another person on a non-material level. We can understand what it would mean if a person was joined to another person on a physical material level. You know, two hands grasp. That's a joining of people together. An arm is put around a shoulder in an embrace. That's a joining of people together. But we know that people can come together in non-material ways. And sometimes the Bible uses the word soul simply to speak of that non-material aspect of a person. I am a person that has a physical aspect, obviously, a physical body, but there's also a non-material aspect to me, a flesh and blood aspect. So, my non-material aspect can truly have a connection with somebody else's non-material aspect. That is certainly how it is with my beloved wife, Ingalil. We are joined together in soul. Uh, maybe it's a cliche, but there's some truth to that phrase, soulmate. And it is possible for someone to be joined together in that non-material soul connection, if we want to use that phrase for it, to someone that they have no business being joined together with. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in a way that's sobering in 1 Corinthians. He speaks of when a person, a man, he uses the example of, comes together with another person in sexual immorality. I think Paul used the figure of a prostitute. It's not just a physical connection that they make. There's also a connection of their non-material beings. And that is something grievous and sinful and needs to be repented of. So Jordan, to put it just in those terms, I do believe that we can connect with people in non-material ways. And I think that we need to be careful with whom and how we connect with other people in non who we connect with emotionally, who we connect with spiritually, who connect with soulishly, if we want to use that phrase. It's important for us to be careful in this and to bring this under the obedience of Jesus Christ in the way that we live. Thank you for that question, Jordan. Next question comes from Henry. Henry asks, was the centurion in Luke 7 with the sick servant a believer? Okay, Henry, it depends how you want to define believer. Did he believe in Jesus? Yes. Did he have genuine faith in Jesus? Yes. So much so that uh, Jesus praised him for his great faith. Commonly, we use the term believer to refer to someone who is a Christian. That is, they have come to Jesus in light of who Jesus is and what he did for us, especially what he did for us in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now, since Jesus, when he interacted with that centurion, 
had not yet died on the cross or risen from the dead, there's a sense in which that centurion was a believer, but not yet a Christian. Now, I would like to believe, and I think we have good reason to believe, that later when Jesus did die on the cross and rise from the dead, he did put his faith in Jesus in that true new covenant sense. So I would just say, Henry, there's a sense in which it just depends on how you define a believer. I have no problem saying that he was a believer just as long as we understand that we're not talking about in the sense of a believer in who Jesus is and what he accomplished according to the terms of the new covenant. That had yet to happen. Hope that's helpful for you, Henry. Next question comes from Char. Ask this question. Did sacrifices for sin stop when the second temple was destroyed and was it done for remission of sins afterwards in Israel? Char, yes, sacrifice stopped when the second temple was destroyed and it was not done by Israel afterwards for sacrifice for sin except for what we might call some very fringe groups. In normative Judaism, or in any significant sect of Judaism, uh, I'm leaving out what may be some small fringe groups, they did not continue to practice the sacrificial system after the second temple was destroyed. Um, that just ended, as a practical matter, the carrying out of the sacrificial system. At first, it was because they could not, because there was no place for sacrifice. Later on, it became uh, simply established in their theology that God was no longer concerned with sacrifice. Now, uh, as Christians, we would probably disagree with that, um, that if a Jewish person was to be consistent, that they must continue on the sense of sacrifice, though we would not applaud them for doing that. We would tell them to look to God's finished, perfect sacrifice, what Jesus performed on the cross in his perfect offering. But we would say that the, the need for sacrifice has not ended since the days of the Bible. It's simply fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But Char, to my knowledge, there was no normal practice of sacrifice in Judaism after the destruction of that second temple in approximately A.D. 70. Next, uh, oh, and then Char adds on, clarification, what was done for remission of sins afterwards in Israel? Well, basically, after the destruction of the second temple, uh, remission of sins was uh, thought to be accomplished by doing good works by obedience and by afflicting oneself on the Day of Atonement. That's really basically it. Salvation is essentially earned by doing your good works and by afflicting your soul. That's a fast on the day of atonement. Um, I think that's basically the path to salvation uh, in Judaism since the destruction of the temple, since the end of the sacrificial system. Next question comes from Andromeda, who asks, does marriage come from the providence of God or does it come from us? Some people say that it's God who gives you a mate, and some people say that you need to make a marriage happen. Okay. Now, Andromeda, uh, or Andromeda, I, I, I just want to be clear on this. Marriage 
as an institution comes from God. It's not the invention of human beings. So as an institution, marriage definitely comes from God. However, when it comes to the individual that someone is to marry, I believe it does happen by the providence of God. But the providence of God can work in a very natural way in an individual. And I think that many people over-spiritualize the um, search for a mate, for a spouse, for a husband or a wife. They kind of wait for God to send down a beam of sunlight from heaven that will identify the one. They want to meet somebody and instantly God will tell them and God will tell the other person, you're the people for each other and that's how it will work. Now, I believe that God has a providential plan in bringing together a husband and wife. I know that God providentially brought together myself and my wife, Ingalil. Listen, I, I know it was of God because it was a miracle. It was a miracle that her parents allowed it to happen. Because if I was looking at it from their eyes, we were both pretty young when we got married uh, in our very young 20s. Man, I... I look at who I was then, and I don't know how much I had going for me, but her parents trusted God and trusted their daughter enough to say, this can work, and praise the Lord, it has. Just coming up in a few months, we're going to have our 40th anniversary. It was the providence of God, but yet at the same time, God works through very natural things. It's just simple attraction. Hey, I like this person. There's something desirable to me about that person. Now, hopefully, you're not only desiring their appearance, and that's not the only thing they're desiring about you. That's a very superficial thing. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it's not the most important thing in a marriage by any means. You say, I like this person. I like being with them. I like being around them. There's something about that person that attracts me to them. That's a very natural way, and God can work providentially through those very natural things. God has a providential plan that he's working out. But I don't think God wants us to sit on the sidelines in general and wait for him to work out that providential plan. God wants us to pursue him and God wants us to use sanctified common sense in the way that we live our life And we will see God's providential plan as it works out. God's providential plan is more accurately seen in the past than it is in the present or especially in the future. So I would advise anybody, if you would like to get married, don't wait for the beam of light from heaven. Use sanctified common sense in approaching people and putting yourself in the company of people that you might be attracted to and they might be attracted to you and see what God might do with that. I hope that's helpful for you there, Andromeda. Barry asks this question. In the prodigal son story, why did the father fulfill the son's request for his inheritance? Couldn't he have withheld it and kept the son with him? Barry, that's a great question, and I'm happy to answer it the best I can. 
But, but let me give a word of caution before I do. We need to be careful that we don't build elaborate systems of theology about the parables. So this is especially, I think, a danger with the parable of the prodigal son. In general, parables are meant to teach one significant truth. And it's interesting, the significant truth that is taught about what we call the parable of the prodigal son really probably has more to do with the elder brother than it does with the one we call the prodigal son. But I could answer the question in this, if we want to relate it to our relationship with God. Sometimes God will give to us things, things that he knows aren't good for us. One is because in some measure, as it will fit in his great sovereign plan, God will give us things that we ask for, even though he knows that in the short term, it'll do us bad. God, at least in some sense, I'm not saying this in an ultimate sense or in an absolute sense, but in some sense, God honors our real choices. Sometimes a parent will say, you want this? I know it's going to turn out bad for you, but I'll respect your choice and maybe you'll learn from it. But I think in the story of the prodigal son, there's another aspect to it. If the father would have refused the son, we can, and again, we're just speaking hypothetically here. We can imagine the son growing very bitter towards the father because he had these great dreams and the father would never let him fulfill those dreams. Now, we know that the son's dreams would only end in ruin and destruction. But the son didn't know that. And the son wouldn't know it until he attempted to live out those foolish dreams and suffered greatly because of it. So I think there's something really to that, Barry. That the father knew, again, we're making too much of this parable as we should, but if we'll allow ourselves to do this. The father knew that if he wanted his son to truly love him and to receive the father's love, he had to let him go off and find the ruin that his son wanted. And then he'd get his son back. That's what he was hoping for all along. So Barry, I hope that that question um, is helpful for you. Another question here from Grizzle MC here asks this question. What do I think about deathbed repentance? Well, I praise the Lord for deathbed repentance. It's real. It happens. But here's the thing. No one should presume upon deathbed repentance. Anybody, and I want to speak very seriously to anybody listening to me right now, anybody who would be foolish enough to think, I don't need to get right with God today because I can always repent on my deathbed. You're being a fool. Because first of all, you don't even know if you'll have a deathbed. Maybe you're going to die suddenly, unexpectedly, and have no ability to repent. You're presuming merely on the fact that you'll have a deathbed. Secondly, 
Every day you push away Jesus Christ, your heart becomes more calloused. You may be on your deathbed with such a hard heart that at that moment you don't even want to repent. It is a foolish thing to presume upon a deathbed repentance. Now, having said that, it's real. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen people repent on their deathbed, and I know that those people are going to heaven. Here's how I like to express it, Grizzle. As far as I know, there is one deathbed repentance in the Bible. I would say that that's the thief on the cross. Remember him? Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Friends, that was a true deathbed repentance. That man was dying. He knew he was about to die. And he said, before I die, I want to settle up things with my king. And he did. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. No, that was a deathbed repentance. And I'm telling you, that thief on the cross did not go to a second class heaven. He went to the same heaven that the person who's lived for Jesus Christ for a hundred years is going to go to. There's one deathbed repentance to assure us that it's real. But there is only one deathbed repentance in the Bible to warn us that we should never presume upon it. That's the best way I would speak about it there, Grizzle. Let me go on to the next question from Justin. What advice do you have for someone who trusts in Christ as their Savior but they often fear that they're not truly saved due to sin struggles in their life. Justin, my advice would be to this. First of all, I would want to give that person a word of assurance. You are not saved by your performance. At the core, your Christian life is not about what you do for Jesus. That's an aspect, but it's not the core. The core of the Christian life is what Jesus Christ has done for you. Always remember that. Take assurance in that. Secondly, I would tell that person to not feel guilty over their overactive conscience. God bless the person with overactive conscience. And the reason why I say that is even though that person lives in some state of torment, it's just so refreshing to meet people who are actually concerned about sin. That seems to be so rare in the present age. So many people seem completely unconcerned with their sin. I got to say, I'm always a little bit encouraged when I meet somebody who has an overactive conscience. Now, I want to assure them. I want them to tell them not to feel guilty about their overactive conscience, but to realize that their salvation is centered in who Jesus is, not in what they do. They've put their faith in Jesus. They've repented of their sin. It's wonderful that they have a tender conscience before God, but they need to get their eyes more on Jesus and less on themselves and make sure that they're living a Jesus-centered Christian life and not a Christian life that is centered upon self. That can be a trap, can it not? So I would encourage those dear brothers and sisters and tell them to keep walking forward. They are beloved of God. And again, I want to congratulate them on swimming against the current tide in an age when it seems that nobody cares about sin. At least they care about it. 
Next question comes from Palm Trees. Please help me understand. Who were the sons of God and daughters of men in Genesis 6, and where did they really come from? Okay, Palm Trees, I should tell you that this is a matter of significant controversy among Bible students, Bible scholars. I'm happy to give you my take, but I don't want you to think that what I say about this is the only word or the last word on it, but I'm happy to give you my take. The dominant interpretation of that through Christian history has been that the sons of God were the godly descendants of Seth and the daughters of men, the daughters of men, maybe I'm getting that mixed up. Anyway, one group was the godly descendants of Seth. The other was the ungodly descendants of Cain. And what this was, was intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly. That has been the dominant interpretation through church history. I find that to be an inadequate explanation on several levels. First of all, Genesis 6 tells us that in some way the offspring from these unions was unnatural. Now listen, I understand that marriage between believers and unbelievers can be rough, but it doesn't produce unnatural offspring. Secondly, there's a very interesting passage in Jude which speaks of the sin of the angels in the days of Noah when they, like Sodom and Gomorrah, went, un went after unnatural flesh. I, I think that putting Jude together with what happened in Genesis leads us to believe that the sons of God and the daughters of men, this was some kind of unnatural union between the human, the daughters of men, and the demonic in um, the sons of God. Now, the other thing that is not explained by the more common interpretation, that it's just the godly marrying the ungodly, is that why would God do such a severe judgment of the world? Because we have to admit, the judgment that God visited upon the world in the days of Noah was horrific. How can we explain that? Apart from a need to cleanse the earth in a radical way because of some kind of genetic corruption. Now, the, the interpretation that I've given you here, it's not easy. There are problems with it. I'll freely admit it. How can the demonic and the human produce offspring? I don't know. The, the way I would suggest, and again, I can't say this for sure, but it makes at least a little bit of sense to me, is that what you're actually talking about here was a unique form of demonic possession. That it was humans having relations with humans, but those representing the sons of God were corrupted by a unique form of demonic possession and thus produced some kind of corrupt offspring. Again, I, I understand this is difficult. There are problems with the interpretation on both sides, but I think that the problems are more significant on the side who say that it was simply believers marrying unbelievers. That's how I would explain it there, palm trees. 
Finally, a question from Bob. Uh, who or what is the book on your shelf called The Story of My Life? Bob, I've been waiting for somebody to ask that question. I'm going to take that book off and show you. This is an amazing book. Maybe for a future giveaway, we'll have a giveaway of this book. This book is called The Story of My Life by William Taylor, Bishop of Africa. William Taylor was an amazing evangelist of the 1900s going in to the 20th century, I believe. He seemed to go all over the world, but he did a majority of his work in Africa. He was a Methodist bishop back in the days when the Methodists were on the forefront of preaching and spreading the gospel all around the world. The story of my life, William Taylor, Bishop of Africa, it is an amazing story, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Sometimes I'd like to talk to you about the beginning, the dedication page, if you can see it there. What he writes on this dedication page is amazing, and we'll share it with you sometime. So, Bob, that's the book, The Story of My Life by William Taylor, Bishop of Africa. Friends, thank you for joining us today. We're going to leave it off at a conclusion. We always let this show run about an hour. Sometimes it ends a little earlier, sometimes later. But we reached our hour. So pleased that you could join us today. Um, next week, we're not going to have a lead question. We're going to go right to the questions that come in on the live chat. So tune in next week. God willing, I'll be there. Hope you can join us. And what we'll do is we'll begin right away with questions from the live chat. We won't have a lead question because we usually spend 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes on the lead question. We're going to get right to it and answer even more questions next week. God bless you. Thank you for joining us and hope you can join us again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.